On today's episode, I answer the question, why did my cat develop a urinary blockage? I discuss, can a brace help after cruciate ligament rupture? What should I feed my cat is another question. And then my cat has kidney failure and needs IV fluids, but my vet doesn't have overnight care. So what are my options? And then finally, is it okay for a puppy to have an anti-rabies injection at the age of two months? But first, let's cue the music. You're listening to the Dr. Alex Answers Podcast, the show that answers all of your dog and cat health questions so they can live healthier, happier lives. And here's your host, veterinarian, Dr. Alex Avery. Hi, and welcome to episode five of the Dr. Alex Answers Show. I'm Dr. Alex, the vet behind ourpetshealth.com, where my aim is to help you and your pet to live a healthier, happier life. And I'd like to thank you so much for joining me today, sharing your earbuds with me. And if you're new to the show and you enjoy the episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast. I've got loads more valuable episodes lined up that you won't want to miss. You can also get your question answered simply by heading over to dralexanswers.com. Right, so my first question is all about a cat who developed a blocked bladder or a urinary obstruction. Now, they couldn't afford everything that was recommended, but they did do some blood work and some urine testing, and the cat was then sedated and had the urethra unblocked. They didn't do any x-rays, but the urine didn't come back as having any crystals in it. The blood came back negative for an infection, and they could have discussed that their cats eat a raw diet and they're indoor cats. And the only thing that they did differently was grow some catnip that he had access to. And they were wondering if that was the cause or really were there any other ideas? What do, what what are the possible causes for a blocked bladder in a male cat? Well, there are a number of causes of an obstruction to start with. Now, they mainly are idiopathic cystitis, and I'll discuss that in a bit more detail in a minute, um, but also bladder stones and infection. And other things can then look very similar as well that can cause a cat to strain, to either leak small amounts of urine or actually just appear not to be able to pass urine properly. And that can be things like nerve damage. It can be um, bladder tumours and it can also be constipation. That can actually look like a cat straining to pee. Um, conversely, a cat that's straining to pee is often mistaken for one who's constipated. So that's something to bear in mind if if that's something that you think your cat's ever suffering from. Now, unless the catnip were causing a lot of stress, then it's highly unlikely related to this blocked bladder. Um, catnip really generally does the opposite. It tends to relax cats um, rather than stress them out. Now, kind of, as I mentioned, the very first cause, that's something called idiopathic cystitis, uh, and that really is stress-related. So it's generally not a bacterial infection. It's generally caused by stress. And that happens in stressful situations when there is also an underlying genetic susceptibility. So obviously not every cat is going to develop a blocked bladder, but if there's an underlying genetic susceptibility, then they're definitely more at risk of developing this, this condition. And equally, um, a cat going through an idiopathic cystitis flare-up is not necessarily going to become blocked. Certainly female cats, they never really become blocked because the, the tubes are a lot more, a lot wider, a lot bigger and don't narrow and, and have the same anatomy as in a male cat. Uh, but yeah, not every cat that develops an idiopathic cystitis situation will become obstructed, but it's a definite risk. Now, urine culture is needed to rule out a bacterial infection as it won't always result in changes in the blood. So that's definitely something to consider. And then also bloods really are generally often run instead to check for kidney levels, to check salt levels, um, which can then impact on treatment given and the prognosis for, for recovery. Equally, urine crystals won't always be present if there is a bladder stone present. So that can be confusing as well. So to rule out a bladder stone completely, then x-rays or ultrasound are needed. But like I say, the vast majority of, of cats don't have those things. 
And then the last thing to mention is that after an episode has occurred, then there is a reasonable risk of recurrence that needs to be managed. And we can do that by reducing stress. Um, and there's a number of ways that I've kind of discussed um, before and over on Our Pets Health uh, about that. We can increase water intake to have a flushing effect. So rather than a concentrated urine that uh, sits there in the bladder and gets a lot of sludge built up, we get a more dilute urine and the bladder is actually flushed on a more regular basis. And then also after a, a case of urinary obstruction or a blocked bladder dietary modification is always is very important as well and so while wet food is great because that also increases water intake there are specific diets that have been proven to to really dramatically reduce the frequency of flare-ups of this idiopathic cystitis um, and also reduce their severity as well so you know further reduce the risk of an obstruction from forming so really those are the most likely causes of a blocked bladder as for kind of treatment of cystitis reducing stress, increasing water intake, head over to ourpetshealth.com where I've got an awful lot more information about that. Before we jump into the next question, this is the perfect time to let you know that this podcast is brought to you by the rpetshealth.com guide to stress in cats. This is the free guide that helps you recognize the signs of stress, a problem that often goes unrecognized, and it gives you steps to take to help your cat relax. Get your free copy today. Simply head over to rpetshealth.com forward slash resources. You're listening to the Dr. Alex Answers Show. Okay, so question number two is about a dog who has got an anterior cruciate or cranial cruciate ligament injury, and they're wondering if a brace can help the repair and the healing process after cruciate damage. So cranial or anterior cruciate ligament rupture, it can be classed as partial or complete. So a partial rupture is almost like a little bit of a fraying of that ligament, whereas a complete rupture is when it's completely given way and it's no longer intact. Now, presumably by this being described as a mild, this is a partial rupture. So it's still very painful, but the joint itself might be still pretty stable. So when the ligament completely goes, the, the, the joint becomes very loose. It's very unstable. It causes a lot of pain and causes a huge amount of problems. Now, a partial rupture is still definitely painful, but it's one that can potentially settle down without more serious intervention. But we'll come on to that in a little bit. Now, there are a number of braces that are available, but personally, I'm not aware of any evidence that they actually improve healing. They improve comfort or they allow more exercise or have any other benefit. Now, if you go onto these websites, there's a lot of testimonials, there's various videos, but testimonials, anecdotal evidence and a few videos don't necessarily represent what's going on. For example, a, a video of a before and after might also be that before the before video, the animal, the dog hadn't had any pain relief. And then the after after video, they'd actually had some pain relief. So, you know, that was why they were walking on their leg um, leg better. Now, I'm not suggesting that that everyone's going out to their way to deceive you but it's certainly things like that that we really need to bear in mind so there have just been no studies done that I'm aware of that of course doesn't mean that they don't work just because there's been no studies done but my concern would be that the, the dog anatomy is not the same as humans uh, in that their, their upper legs really aren't a constant fixed diameter and they don't really readily allow a brace to be placed that in my mind would be firmly enough fixed in one spot to only allow the the normal rotational movement to take place or the the, the movement through one plane to take place and prevent the other slipping forces acting on the knee so you know braces are something that is used a lot in human human anterior cruciate ligament damage but i don't know that that's necessarily easy to replicate in dogs 
So what can we do? Well, rest is going to be crucial. And also in most cases, actually, although we can rest and, and we can give painkillers and it might settle down, in most cases, even with, with a partial rupture, unless it's very, very mild, then surgical intervention generally represents the best chance of recovery for a dog with a partial or a complete rupture. Now, with a mild rupture, like I say, rest and anti-inflammatory painkillers may be completely appropriate. But when things are more serious or when there's a complete rupture, really for dogs weighing less than than 15 kilos or about 30 pounds, you know, if they're managed conservatively, then about 80% of those will recover to a satisfactory degree. So they either won't be lame at all or they'll only have a mild lameness every now and then. Of course, that then leaves 20% or um, one in five as having more serious lameness, more persistent lameness. So whether that's a good... good um, good result or not I'll leave that for you to decide but generally with surgery that becomes much better that goes up to 95% or so maybe even more now if we go on to larger dogs so those over 15 kilos or over 30 pounds then they really don't do well without surgery once if we're resting it once it eventually stabilizes then the amount of arthritis present it'll just be so much worse than it would otherwise have been and it will be crippling there will be serious problems and remember very often these are young dogs as well not always but often they're young or middle-aged dogs so they've got a long life in front of them to live with an awful lot of pain also if we're then giving them painkillers for a long long period of time before we otherwise may have had to then the cost of that can actually um, be more potentially than the the treatment so that the surgery so that's something to bear in mind as well now going back to braces it may be that a brace does help but like I say I have my doubts and again if you go online and you look for these things they can cost anywhere from several hundred dollars to a thousand dollars and we have to ask the question is this money going to be better spent on treatment that we know benefits the individual potentially an awful lot better so like i say we don't we don't know the answer to this or i certainly don't know the answer to this and i'm not aware of any good studies that have been done but that's really my concern that we might be you know wasting money when it would be better used on another treatment modality now of course i'd love a study to be done on this with knee braces because cruciate ligament rupture is is really such a common problem and if we have different ways to manage it that maybe are more affordable or more effective in certain conditions then that would be fantastic okay so question number three is all about what should we feed a cat so this new cat owner had an older cat that died um, who was 18 years old and was fed mostly on a dry food on advice of their their vet so 18 years old is a you know very respectable age they fed her according to her weight twice a day and she was in really good health and an ideal weight for for the vast majority of her life but they've just got a new kitten and they're wondering you know what should they feed and how much should they feed her should it be wet food dry food raw a mixture you know what's the best thing well let's start with the fact that feeding and food in cats and dogs can be a really controversial subject but you know here's my kind of brief summary opinion and you know i'd be really interested to hear what what you think of this as well um as far as what amount we need to feed now obesity is a huge epidemic so many cats and so many dogs are obese it's just it's just really very tragic and they're not living the life that they want and they're getting diseases that they shouldn't have to. So really the amount we feed is as much as she needs and no more. Really we need to base that on monitoring weight trends and body condition scoring. So that's something that um, the veterinary team can go through. The vet techs and vet nurses are fantastic at uh, monitoring weight and maintaining weight and very often clinics are running weight clinics as well. Um, 
also ask your vet what your cat's ideal weight is when they're next in for for their next checkup you know that's something that we really need to be discussing in any wellness in any wellness consultation we want to be evaluating weight and checking that our pets are a healthy weight and not kind of creeping up because it's very easy for a little bit of a creep to to take place over a number of years and before you know it you've got a cat who's overweight or even morbidly obese you can also obviously monitor weight at home and, and we monitor that on bathroom or kitchen scales or something like that so you know we need to feed the amount that a cat, an individual cat needs and there's going to be a huge variation so i often find that if you're feeding a commercial food then the pet food manufacturers you know will slightly overestimate the amount to feed unless your cat or your dog is very active so we need to feed appropriate for the individual lifestyle and the individual genetics as well now if we're thinking about actually what to feed well I don't recommend raw feeding and that's for a number of different reasons. It's a health risk to us as their owners, albeit a low health risk, it's potentially serious, as well as being health risks to any raw fed cat. And I've actually got a comprehensive article kind of about all of these risks and benefits and discussing this over on rpetshealth.com or on the Rpets Health podcast. Now, I feel dry food is fine to feed a healthy cat. This is something that, again, people get very passionate about and will claim that if you know, they're developing certain conditions such as kidney disease um, because they're being fed a dry food. But really, that doesn't follow. There's no no evidence for that. If an animal does have, a cat does have kidney disease, then wet food, you know, it is going to be generally preferred. Well, it's going to be definitely preferred if at all possible. But that in itself doesn't mean that dry food causes these problems in otherwise healthy cats now one thing to bear in mind if you are feeding dry food is that cats can become kibble junkies so they'll only ever then eat dry food if that's all they're ever used to so i definitely think it's a good idea if you are feeding if you, a dry food if you're choosing to feed a dry commercial kibble then it's a good idea to also feed some wet food of different textures different consistencies and different flavors every now and then just to help avoid them your cat becoming a dry food addict now let's moving on to, to wet feeding now feeding a wet food is never going to be the wrong thing to do it encourages water intake which is something cats aren't very good at you know a normal healthy cat is able to compensate for a low water intake because in the in the wild in the desert where they originate then they don't generally get a lot of water so they're just getting they're, they're used to drawing a lot of water out of their food but if we're giving them a wet food they're definitely going to have enough water we don't need to worry about that and then if they do develop a condition later on that means that we need or that we want them to have a high water intake so be that kidney disease be that diabetes then they're already being fed and they're already happy to accept a wet food which can be very important but you know there are also other ways to get cats to drink as well which i've discussed um, separately elsewhere so you know that's kind of my very broad summary on feeding i don't recommend raw i don't think inherently for every cat that a dry kibble is bad and actually i do feed my cats a dry kibble but equally we should be feeding wet food every now and then just to make sure that they're used to that and if you want to feed a wet food then you know that's never going to be the wrong thing to do so you know potentially that's therefore the best thing to do um you know i'd love to hear your thoughts on this potentially controversial topic ask your question at dr alexanswers.com
So moving on to question four, we've got a cat who has kidney disease. They've got really high levels of creatinine and urea and SDMA in their blood. So those are parameters or markers of the kidneys potentially not working very well. Certainly with SDMA, we can get a high urea and creatinine with a dehydrated cat. But anyway, their cat's been diagnosed with kidney disease. She's going on IV fluids to try and flush out the system to try and get those levels down. And the vet is anticipating that's going to take four or five days to happen. But the vet doesn't have overnight care so what's the the what are the options really what's the likelihood of another vet taking her on where they won't have to spend you know extortionate amounts of money and certainly after hours care care overnight can cost an awful lot in some situations so Let's start with the fact that IV fluids, they are often needed for a cat with kidney failure when they become unwell. And certainly this can sometimes be the first presentation and the first hint that there is a problem with the kidneys going on. Now, so long as the damage is not too advanced, then they can do these cats can do very well with this treatment. The IV fluids flushes the system. It flushes all these toxins out of the system. Um, it gets a cat eating again. They feel a lot better. They start eating. They get put on appropriate treatment, which is um, often dietary management. Um treatment to control blood pressure treatment to stop protein leaking out of the out through the kidneys control nausea anemia all these other things they can do very very well is the bottom line so it's definitely something that's appropriate and worth pursuing iv fluids intravenous fluids they are not risk-free if a cat is left unattended if too much is administered too quickly then ultimately they can effectively drown a cat. The excess fluid builds up in the lungs um, that compromises their ability to, to breathe and they effectively drown. And also we need to think then that a cat with kidney failure is more sensitive to these excess fluids in a, a normal healthy patient. While they can still get what we call fluid overloaded, the, the kidneys are able to cope and they're working, working really well and they're able to kind of pump out and get rid of this extra water that's being administered through the IV IV drip line but in a cat with kidney failure that's something that they're not able to do so the risk though of this is still very low so long as caution is taken so we want to give fluids at a rate that is rehydrating the patient but we don't want to overdo that and really this fluid overload it's very unlikely if an appropriate rate is chosen and a fluid pump is used compared to just using a kind of gravity fed um, drip line Unless, of course, there's an equipment failure and the fluid pump breaks and starts pumping excessively. But really, you know, that's the, the chances of that are really, really slim. So the most likely thing if a, if a cat is left overnight is that the fluids will become blocked. So that therefore, obviously, not get the benefit of those fluids until the blockage is cleared in the morning. But that in itself isn't necessarily a dangerous situation so long as they're not blocked for, you know, a 24 hour period, which is obviously not going to happen. There's never going to be a situation where a cat is, is left for for that period of time certainly depending on the office hours you know it could be um 14 hours but so long you know as the fluids are running for a little bit um the period of obstruction is unlikely to be for more than a few hours but that's something to bear in mind so really when it comes to overnight care options you need to talk to to your vet about what the options are so they may be happy for your cat to stay in their hospital overnight so long as you accept the the fact that there is a risk albeit a very very small risk involved with that um you know i currently work in a in an area where there's no 24-hour emergency clinic or there's no overnight emergency clinic and so this is what routinely happens to to patients over here um is the fact that they are left overnight they're left on uh, an appropriate rate of fluids and you know it's a very similar situation to to what this this cat may be going through and really apart from the catheter becoming blocked overnight never had 
any problems at all. Now, that's not to say that they're never going to happen, but it, the chance of that is very slim. You know, they may be your, your vet may also be able to advise you on a, a different low cost option for your area where your cat can be transferred overnight. So there might be different options there. That's not an expensive emergency clinic. But then the other option or the only other option that doesn't involve an overnight expensive stay or transfer is accepting that your cat might only be able to be on fluids over the day and then has to go home at night. So that's, you know, another thing to consider. Is it ideal no, it's not ideal, but it's certainly something to, to to think about. And then when you're at home, if you are doing this, when you're at home, there are a number of other ways that you can try and maximise water intake. Um, and, you know, there's a number of ways we can do that. Like I say, one thing to think about, certainly in kidney disease patients, you know, when they may not be eating very well, is actually giving subcutaneous fluids. That's something that can be done at home it's a case of giving fluids under the skin and it can work you know reasonably well in this situation it's nowhere near as ideal as intravenous fluids but it's definitely something to consider so really the take home is talk to your vet about the different options there are definitely other options out there they may not be quite ideal they may come with a slight risk or they may not give the full benefit but there are definitely other options if you're not able to afford or not wanting to afford the the high cost that can be involved with 24-hour care so remember that the information that I give in these podcasts is not a substitute for a consultation, an examination with your pet's veterinarian, and should not be taken as specific advice for any individual pet. If your pet is unwell, injured, or suffering from any kind of problem, then talking to your vet is always the best course of action. My final question is, is it okay that a dog has been injected with an anti-rabies shot at the age of two months? Well, age of vaccination is something definitely something to think about and really different vaccines are licensed for use at different ages and with different protocols so it really depends on the vaccine you know then depending on which country you're in which state you're in certainly if you're in the US then there are then different legislative requirements which detail when rabies vaccination must be given and these two things aren't always the same so the the vaccine license doesn't always tie in with the state legislation so it might be that a vaccine is able to be given earlier and it's actually maybe beneficial to give it earlier but then the state legislation requires that a vaccine is actually given a little bit later so that may, may mean that you decide to to give a pet more vaccines than they may strictly need just to satisfy that early risk while they're young and also the the legislative requirements as well so with the rabies vaccines that i'm familiar with they can definitely be given from as young as four weeks of age but they'll always require that final initial vaccination course or even single vaccination to be given at 12 weeks of age or older so if a dog is being vaccinated at a younger age so at two months here so eight weeks then they will need a second vaccination at 12 weeks of age or older like I say to also comply with that state legislation and really it's a risk benefit assessment so we want to give the vaccinations that a dog needs without over vaccinating so if the risk of rabies is incredibly low so if you're actively supervising your young puppy you're not letting them mix with wildlife or unknown dogs other unknown animals then giving an earlier vaccine is probably not going to be needed because the risk of them contracting that disease and this is the same with um, parvovirus or distemper or any of other of these kind of vaccine preventable pre preventable diseases then you know if there's really a low risk then we don't need to worry about vaccinating them really early having said that if there is a risk if there is known problem in the area if there's a, a, a outbreak if there's a, a flare-up or if the lifestyle of you and your dog means that they are going to be in high-risk situations then getting them that earlier vaccine is definitely going to be beneficial because 
with a lot of these diseases as well, really are really young pups are, are super sensitive to these things and they have a, a lot often have a high fatality rate. Obviously, rabies has pretty much a 100% fatality rate anyway, but certainly if a dog has got rabies, then they're going to need to be euthanized because that's a massive human health risk and that's something we definitely don't want to overlook. So really, talk to your vet about the local risks for your dog in conjunction with your lifestyle as well. And then also discuss what the legislation means that your dog will need later on if they have had that earlier vaccination. So we definitely want to think of both of those things so that your dog is both safe and also complies with whatever laws are around where you live. Right, so that's it for this episode. I hope you found it helpful, interesting or entertaining. And if you have, then I'd be really grateful if you could share it with your friends and family on the social platform of your choice, be that Facebook, Twitter, um, whatever, email them, WhatsApp. Remember too to head over to dralexanswers.com where you'll find the links that I've mentioned and downloads that I've mentioned in today's show and you could also submit any question that you might have. But until next time, take care. You've been listening to the Dr. Alex Answers Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, subscribe and we'll see you on the next episode of the show where you ask the questions and Dr. Alex answers. <laughs>